Welcome to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banatini. Here, I interview brain scientists and discuss their work as well as the latest advancements and challenges in the field of brain mapping. Today, my guest is Dr. Bharat Biswal, who, while in graduate school, was the first to report the observation of functional correlation in the resting state fMRI signal. In this case, it was between left and right motor cortex. This first resting state fMRI paper was published in Magnetic Residence in Medicine in 1995 and is titled Functional Connectivity in the Motor Cortex of Resting Human Brain Using Echoplanar MRI. This observation, back in the early 90s, ushered in an entirely new subfield of fMRI and a new era in functional imaging that permeates much of what we do today. Dr. Biswal is a distinguished professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering in the New Jersey Institute of Technology, as well as the Department of Radiology in New Jersey Medical School. He received his bachelor's degree from uh, Utkal University in India in electrical engineering in 1989. He received his master's at Michigan Technical University in 1991, and he received his PhD from the Medical College of Wisconsin in the biophysics department uh, under the guidance of Dr. Jim Hyde in 1996. So I've known Brat since we were both graduate students back in the early 90s. And in this conversation, he recounts the events leading up to and including his discovery of the signal. We also talk about all things resting state fMRI related, including things like white matter correlations and potential clinical applications of resting state. He even asked me a few questions of his own. This is definitely worth a listen as he weighs in on the challenges, limits, and opportunities of resting state fMRI today. It was truly a captivating conversation and quite a bit of fun, as I always have with Bharat. So I hope you enjoy it. I have a special guest today, somebody I've known for years, uh, Bharat Biswal, who I think uh, all of you know the name, all of you know of his paper uh, that he uh, made that seminal discovery of, of resting state correlations uh, in functional MRI signal. And he basically created an entire subfield of fMRI on his own. So, so Bharat, thanks for, thanks for joining. Um, thank you, Peter, for inviting. Um, it feels um, going back 20, 25 years. Um, in, in case um, anyone doesn't know. Um, I started my PhD when Peter, the famous Peter Banatini was a, uh, he was just starting his fourth year. And so I had been trying to follow up and still trying. So thank you, Peter, for inviting. Now your paper, I was actually looking at Google Scholar, your first paper, has almost 10,000 citations. I think any of our first papers, even Ken Kwong's, 
I think is around 4,000. So yeah, it's gotten a lot of traction. And, and, and the, what's important as well is that, I mean, you've been really active continuously ever since sort of pushing and refining and advancing resting state fMRI as well. So maybe, so yeah, we both came from the same MCW uh, uh, institution and, and, uh, and it was, it was a great, great place uh, for fostering graduate students to just try stuff and a lot of creativity. And of course that credit goes to, to Jim Hyde who encouraged us to, to, to kind of be bold in, in how we're exploring and not just sort of fall down well-trodden paths. So, so why don't you, why don't we just start out by tracing the, the history of like, for instance, you, you started at MCW, just kind of curious why you chose MC, MCW. And then, and then also as you were a graduate student, what caused you to go in this direction and make this discovery? So what was what was the environment like and, and what happened? I had visited Milwaukee for a job interview. At that time, I had applied uh, to a few PhD place uh, programs, and I was really interested uh, to do a PhD. And um, I was staying with a friend, and he suggested that I meet uh, Dr. Hyde, this famous physicist who was working on medical imaging. and maybe I would find that work interesting. So I went to visit, uh, I called, um, at the time I don't think email was that popular. So I, I called his office and um, I, I think I called on a Friday and Monday I went to his office. It was like in March, I believe. And so the PhD application was already completed. And Dr. Hyde still took the time to meet with me. It was Dr. Hyde and Andre. And Dr. Hyde like right away said that, you know, he typically picks only one PhD student and he had already selected Beth Myron, who was coming from Yale from John Gore's lab. And he was just talking, you know, what I was, what I had done for my master's thesis. And then um, Dr. Hyde mentioned that when he was at MIT, there was an electrical engineer who was fairly good, and he was, his name was Kalman. And I think I told Dr. Hyde, I think Kalman is beyond good. He's considered like a, like his work is like considered one of the foundation in signal processing. And so Dr. Hyde asked me to explain what this Kalman filtering did. Um, so luckily I had taken some courses so I could explain. Then Dr. Hyde said, well, let me see, why don't you apply? I will see if I have the money or not. And then Dr. Hyde said, which other places have you applied? And I told him and then Dr. Hyde said, I think you are going to get rejected from this university, this university, and this university. You will only get admitted to this university and maybe you will get a TA ship at one or two places. And um, you may find it hard to believe, Peter, but maybe a week later, I started receiving the letter, <laughs> just as Dr. Hyde had predicted. And so I also became a little curious as to, you know, who would, who would think that Kalman was just an okay guy? <laughs> <laughs> so I came back because I was still in Milwaukee. So I came back 
to MCW, read to the library, looked up some of his papers, um, and then read more and more about MRI. And I would also call him like every Tuesday that has a decision been made. And I think Chris Felix, who was the administrator, he one day saw me in, sitting in the library and reading um, MR textbooks. So I think he went and told Dr. Hyde, you know, I'm, I'm just very fortunate that, you know, soon after I received uh, admissions to the PhD program. And so once you were there, so I remember, I actually, I, I kind of faintly remember when you, when you were starting, what did happen in terms of how you discovered, you know, what were you searching for? And then how did you discover this? I mean, there's always a certain amount of serendipity. But, uh... Right. So I, I forgot an important thing. So when I left that day after meeting Dr. Hyde, Dr. Hyde gave me your paper, right? Dr. Hyde said, well, here is this technique which has come like being developed and, you know, Peter is doing, and this is the first paper and maybe you, you may have done signal processing in one dimension. You may have done some images in two dimension, but here is a problem in three dimension, um, 3D plus time. And so the way he said was people are using fMRI, but using the same method as PET. And if fMRI has better spatial and temporal resolution, there should be something unique there. So this could be a good thesis topic. So, you know, I, I think this was like, almost like his exact words, like, you know, this is what PET has done. This is the resolution of fMRI. Look at this data and see what do you see. And so what I did was at that time, I, again, I, I didn't really know much about neuroscience. Um, so the only thing I knew was about EEG. And so I read up some literature. And um, when I was reading, I thought, and there were some papers where they, they were seeing that when you performed a task, the respiration and heart rate would change just around that time. So I thought that would be like a simple problem to do that Peter has done finger tapping and for some other tasks, maybe if I looked carefully when the task was occurring, then I would see the respiration change or maybe get delayed. And so that is what I started, but uh, it wasn't um, that easy because um, first of all, we didn't really have that many data points to look at like each epoch of respiration cycle, I could just get maybe a couple of data points and then investigate. I thought the other thing I could try is to maybe look at the brain as a transfer function. You have an input, you have an output, and then can I better characterize the transfer function? And if I could characterize the transfer function, maybe we could model it better. Again, in like in signal processing, the best input that you can um, send to a signal is a random noise. And so I was doing that, but I also thought it would be good to have a resting scan just as the null distribution. So I had like a resting scan, finger tapping paradigm as you had done. And then I was providing asking the subjects to do 
finger tapping in a random fashion, and then again, um, collecting a rest scan. Um, but the transfer function wasn't really working that well because for longer duration, I could predict quite well, but for shorter duration, it, it didn't work. Um, and then um, I was looking at the spectral features, like what noise were there and so on. While you know the heart rate was aliased, I could see the respiration, but it looked like the respiration had some power, but not a whole lot of power. So even after filtering the respiration, there was not much of an improvement. I thought maybe I might as well see what the structure of this noise is. So I had like, I correlated uh, from the sensory motor cortex as you had done. And then I did the same thing for the resting state scan. And I was, I should say that I was a little surprised, but not very surprised because I thought, you know, if you have an electrical circuit or if you have a system, then if you present a stimulus and you get a response, then if you present a noise, then you should get a similar response. Yeah. Um, and um, during that time, like I would meet Dr. Hyde like once a week. And But before I met Dr. Hyde, I would uh, speak with Zaren Yatkin to make sure that the results I was showing him was all fine and things like that. So after I showed her, she, um, so I had made some points like the noise inside the brain is greater than noise outside, which is to be expected. Like there was difference in noise power between gray matter, white matter and CSF. And then there was this correlation that was, that I was observing. So Zerenyatkin said, I should stop everything else and just focus on this one. <laughs> and um, so I give her a lot of credit because she said she was a clinician. So she said maybe that this could be something like what people do in EKG or so that you could just collect the data at rest and then you would have this pattern that could be used. <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. That's uh, so Zarin Zarin was prescient in, in in that regard. So and pretty much all you were doing then was just trying to characterize the filter properties of, you know, the time series by yeah, looking at the spatial and temporal correlation and and whatever. Yeah, and you just found instead sure that that the other motor cortex was more highly correlated and so Zarin jumped on that. So I'm kind of curious then when when it sort of grew so you showed Hyde and, and then it, it grew from there. Um, right. So I, I showed Dr. Hyde in maybe like in my first year, like February of my first year, these results. And um, then like Dr. Hyde wanted to make sure that this was like very, like, like everything was done correctly and so on. So like one thing we were worried was, I think whether... I forget whether it was you or maybe Steve Rayo. We're doing a we're doing had done a study where you were imagining finger tapping and showing some response, right? So 
we were worried whether there was some kind of effect from that. So we tried to use different parameters. So we would tell the subject that, okay, you're going to do an auditory task where you would be listening to some words or some music. While we would tell them that we would be collecting the um, resting state scan. And then um, says that there was no imagination of finger tapping. And after we had collected the resting state scan, um, we would go inside the scanner and say, hey, can you do a finger tapping? And most people, like because many of them were graduate students who had already volunteered for your study, for (laughs) them, it was fairly straightforward. They would say, oh, no problem. Uh, So we would do a finger tapping task at the end. Uh, So that was one change we had to do. The other change was, you know, whether it has some noise, whether there was respiration or cardiac aliasing, Uh, we were worried about that. So that is why we decided to only do two slices, but with a much faster sampling rate, and then do that. After the first observation to the time, I had a manuscript written, took maybe another six months or so. Um, And in the meantime, um, we had gone to, uh, I think, ISMRM uh, in New York in 1993. There I had shown that there was this noise characteristic difference between gray matter, white matter, and CSF. At that time, like I should say, at that time, you know, you were doing finger tapping, Alan Song was doing um, diffusion. So I was still not sure what my thesis topic would be (laughs) and whether it would pan out or not. And so I go to the conference and the first talk was by Jack Bellavu. And I think the second talk was by Robert Weisskopf who was showing these differences between gray matter and white matter. And at that time, I, you know, it was my first year, so I had no idea who Robert Weisskopf was. And I think I asked you or Eric, and the response was like, (laughs) he's one of the like top five MR physicists, right? So so after that, um, I guess I thought, okay, maybe if, Dr. Weisskopf is doing, maybe it is okay to go along the same lines. Initially, the paper got rejected, I I should say, from (laughs) a couple of journals. Um, And and then, you know, I was like getting desperate uh, to have a topic and get it published. Uh, At that time, your paper had also come in MRM, so we submitted to MRM. But unlike your paper, my paper went through four rounds of review. Oh, oh God! <laughs> so, but I'm 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 glad it was published. Yeah. No. And and you know what's what's interesting is yeah. I think that a lot of people were so you sort of simultaneously also were working on just understanding the noise characteristics, and people hadn't also fully appreciated you know physiologic noise, and so you sort of helped push that part of the field too. But you know, what I found really interesting is that even after you published your paper, I'm actually, you know, it, it's amazing that, that, you know, few people picked up on it, but 
it really took about, it seems like it took about 10 years for the field to sort of like finally catch up. And, and you know, if you, if you follow, like you ever do a search on like, you know, resting state or whatever, you know, you have a few papers after 1995, it's sort of trickling and then, and then it explodes at like 2005 or six. And then, you know, obviously now, you know, in the past few years, OHBM has been dominated by resting state, but, but what do you think, why do you think it took 10 years, about a decade of like, not really quite catching on? It, right. So that's a, like a little difficult question to answer because like when we started, there were contro- it's not like there was no controversies in the field. Unfortunately, uh, um, in my case, it's not that the people disagreed with my data. It is that right. people did not believe my data. And, you know, I think that that was like where the problem, like, so, like my problem started was that people did not believe the data. And then um, initially when I would um, go to conferences, I remember after one talk, someone um, came and asked me how they could replicate my results. And, <laughs> and I was just like, you know, I was like a second year, a th- second or third year grad student. And I had like this famous person is asking me how they can replicate my result. And all I could say is that it's in the method section of the abstract. Um, But the second thing was this, then after this person, another person comes and asks the same question. I I didn't know what to answer. So, uh, so there was a lot of that, but but I, I feel that maybe it was like people maybe had used task activation. And therefore, if you truly believe task activation, then you have to believe, in my opinion, that you have to believe that the baseline condition is just random noise. And if the resting state is providing a functionally connected region, then what does task activation mean? Uh, perhaps from, for those reasons, people were like very dismissive. As regards to why it took 10 years, I think things happened in progression. So um, after 1995 paper, Mark Lowe published. Yep. Yep. And then during that time, I had published a couple of other paper using showing how you could use hypercapnia to modulate these fluctuations. Um, I had another paper where we had used um, spin echo, simultaneous spin echo gradient echo to show the relative weighting between a flow and um, bold effect. Yeah. And then there was a paper I had on Tourette's syndrome, which was again, like uh, Zen and Yetkin had, you know, I was involved with her on that project. So I had like these work. And then I think what happened was Michelle Hampson published a paper in Journal of Neuroscience. Okay. Um, I think that was the first like high profile paper using resting state. Um, And then there was the famous paper by Marcus Rakel and uh, 
yep. uh, Gus, Gus, Deb, Deborah Gusnard, I believe, where they had used the default mode they had uh, described. And then in 2003, there was a paper by Vinod Menon and Mike Reesius yeah. in PNAS where they said, okay, there is this default mode, but you can basically use the same analysis as Biswal et al and get the same pattern. And then came Mike Fox's paper yeah. in 2005. And I think around that time also, there were many papers on default mode, which was getting published in PNAS. I think that uh, certainly helped. And then I, I believe in 2010, the paper with Mike Milham and others, um, I feel here that it was not just a paper. We were made, we had made all the data public. Uh, we had also made all the codes public, right? So in other words, what we were saying is that, okay, this is all the data we have. This is all the scripts you used and you can run this script to generate this figure. So, you know, if there is some, error in the method, find it, or else, you know, you can use it for your resting state data. I, yeah. I think that was maybe, you know, all this, I, I would say all the papers I mentioned, and I'm sure I forgot a few other important papers during that time, but all of them contributed. Yeah, yeah, no, actually also, and that's a sort of a, a good segue. I mean, that paper, was kind of ahead of its time, I think, a little bit in terms of open, open access, you know, open data, data sharing and sharing code. Now that's the paper toward discovery science of human brain function and PNAS. There were um, like a thousand connectome runs or data sets that, and so what, what has been, what has become of that, that paper or that data set? Um, is it still being used or is it, uh, I'm sure probably people are downloading it still. Um, uh, I I believe it's still one of the most downloadable data sets from the Netric website. There are many software, right? Which is maybe a few megabytes, but this is a huge data set which people still download and use. Uh, Mike has um, of course done a whole lot by using the monkey data set. Okay. Yeah data set. There is, of course, now HCP uh, data, both with uh, healthy subjects um, and so on. Um, in, in terms of that paper, I, I should say that we were like very, very lucky, but also we got a lot of help from many people who I can never thank enough. So when we initially thought of the idea we had simply written email to maybe 50 people. Anyone who had published a resting state abstract or a paper, um, I wrote to them. Um, and I think at that time, it was a, even a crazier idea than doing resting state is to asking people to give their data. Um, and so many people said no right away. There were few people um, I should say a few friends who had to call and beg that please share the data. I just need um, some data. And, and that is where um, later I found out that Yufeng Zhang, uh, in, uh, who was at Beijing, was 
trying to do a larger project. So when we asked him, he gave us 200 data sets. So wow. with 200 data set, we had more than 500 data. We thought that we could have a paper. And at that time, we also had asked Randy Buckner without realizing that he was trying to do this, uh, the super uh, structure uh, project that he did. And so he was kind enough to, you know, give us a similar number of subjects. So we had like 700 subjects. So then we went back to all the people we had asked and asked them that, hey, we already have 700 data. So we really want you to participate. Can you share the data? And so we got another 300 data set, believe it or not. Wow. So that is how it was done. And I again, I think like everyone who gave 20 data set or 30, or Randy Buckner and Yufeng who gave 200, I will always be grateful to them. And, and I should say people had also tried before trying to make data public. Um, so maybe like, I was very lucky to be at that time. And I'm, I'm just like also quite happy that nowadays most journals, they make you have this code and data sharing section. Yeah. And people are much more open. Yeah, no, actually, and it helps the field. It, it pushes the field, it pushes the, you know, people can t download the data, try their analysis, you know, advanced methods. And, and, and actually, and, and it's still being pushed to sort of, you know, advance standardization and acquisition as well and all kinds of things. But so, all right, well, let me, let me uh, switch gears a, a little bit and talk about the resting state signal in general. You know, certainly it's been advanced a lot over the years. I mean, there's dynamic resting state, there's, uh, there's clinical studies, you've done a lot of work on trying to look at clinical populations, how they differ, you know, trying to tease out more information from the resting state signal. You've also worked on, you know, it seems like kind of the thing that you, that you think about a lot is, is, is filtering methods, uh, you know, various, various types of filters, uh, you know, spline, homomorphic, adaptive, diffusion. Um, so what do you think is so so this as far as the state of resting state fMRI right now maybe maybe if you could just highlight you know the big advances or or some of the major advances or and then also sort of talk about a little bit of what your contribution or some of your more recent work along those lines i mean you know i've i actually you know it's funny i was looking at some of your papers and i i saw really cool stuff like you know i saw like you know effects of weather on resting state <laughs> effects of, um, and then you actually have a paper that shows connectivity in white matter. And I would love to talk about that as well. And, but just in general, just looking at psychiatric disorders too, is, it seems like an interesting thing. So wherever you want to take it. Can I first talk about white matter? And then yeah. we had um, looked at the gray matter and for, for a number of reasons, like people would dismiss the white matter as not like there should not be much signal. And um, so then um, there was this uh, famous, now famous paper by Laura Lewis, where she has shown um, that in CSF, in sleep, how you can have this modulation. Yep. And, 
and I had like a very similar data set with me and I hadn't even looked. So I was thinking that, you know, what are the assumptions we are making? And have I, you know, while I had like uh, compared to task activation, while I had assumed that maybe in resting state there is information, could it be that there are, I should be looking at white matter and other specific uh, areas. And when I started doing some literature search, I found out that there were a couple of papers already. So I cannot say I was the first person to investigate white matter resting state. So there's um, some very nice work by Michael Beer. Um, there's another work by Zhiguao Ding from Vanderbilt. Um, so in, in our case, I simply focused on the corpus callosum because the corpus callosum is the largest white matter region. And basically using the same diffusion atlas as has been used and using those parcels to look at connectivity. And what we find, which is again, very surprising, is that there is a good concordance between what we get from white matter tracks and what we get from uh, using resting state from the white matter. And maybe, again, I, you know, it still remains to be seen. Uh, I'm trying to see whether the white matter signal and the gray matter signal could be combined and then we could find regions like uh, parcellations, which could uh, basically uh, map out the whole brain and not, not just um, the gray matter regions. That is like what I'm trying, but uh, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean certainly, you know, people argue that, you know, the white matter doesn't have enough blood or the hemodynamic coupling is different, but, uh, or maybe the, the signatures uh, of, of the resting state are just different. And, and so it is interesting, your, your maps and your paper looked convincing. So if you take like a seed voxel in white matter, other areas along the track show up, but not gray matter though. And that's kind of or interesting. Well, actually the way we analyze now, I have focused only within white matter because I wanted to first establish, you know, are these white matter signal organized in some specific way? So now we know how the gray matter is organized. The next try is to see if they can all be combined together to find, yeah. um, you know, and is there some kind of interaction between the white matter signal and the gray matter signal, or are they from the same origin? Well, that's interesting. I sort of think of white matter tracks as maybe, you know, at least from my naive view of the brain, it's like, yeah, I imagine they're super highways and they're always active in some way, but, but I'm sure they're modulatable. And that sort of leads to sort of a question that I had what your perspective of, you had a, one paper sort of maybe talking a little bit about the nature of like, is it, is resting state signal, is it like oscillatory or is it driven by, you know, some people argue it's driven by like these punctate quasi random activations that are just co-activations. What, what's your perspective now on like, what's driving the resting state? Is it, is it purely oscillatory? You can do Fourier analysis and see it or is it, you know, punctate activation? And 
And if so, you know, what, what part is, you know, what role does it play ultimately? <laughs> Peter, that's a very difficult question because, you know, if um, I was to ask people doing EEG, you know, um, how are the EEG patterns generated? Why are they oscillatory and yeah. what is their content? Even after a hundred years, <laughs> um, people may not have, you know, a very good idea. Um, so in terms of uh, what is the nature of the signal, I still think that um, these low frequency fluctuations uh, maintain some sort of balance between blood flow and metabolism. And um, that is why we, we have these uh, fluctuations. And, and that is why when people have tried to use anesthesia or even hypercapnic stimulus, um, these fluctuations get disrupted. You know, unfortunately, it's not that easy to change the blood flow without changing metabolism and vice versa. So it's not that easy in terms of, you know, whether it's completely oscillatory or is it quasi-periodic, that is, in my opinion, a little difficult because one of the researchers whose work I admire most is Shella Kleihos. Yeah. And according yeah. to her, it's quasi-periodic. So mm -hmm. I would say it is periodic, but I, I also like, I would also say that it, it, it has these uh, period, while it may have a dominant frequency, but it, it changes around that uh, same, frequency, same frequency, perhaps the same way as our heart rate, right? We may have a heart rate, but over the course of a day, it may go up and down by 10%. So yeah. similarly, maybe it does. So what about, um, so in one of your papers also, you show, you kind of suggest that there are different classes like low frequency and less low frequency or, or right, higher frequency. Right. Uh, have you seen patterns related to that? It, right. So I think the paper, uh, I think Shinyan Zuo was the first author. Um, but that paper, in that paper, Peter, what we are doing is we are looking at specific frequency band and those bands were, de were uh, you derived using EEG literature. So there's a uh, paper by Kuri Busaki where he basically made a power spectrum of the human EEG signal and showed that there is slow four, slow three and uh, you know alpha, beta, gamma and um, which are present. So with the multiband and other sequence that, that is currently available, that was what we were trying to do. Show that whether, you know, what are the different frequency component? Also, is there any other, you know, beyond 0.1 Hertz, which we have typically filtered out? If we use frequency beyond that, can we see the same network pattern. While we do see network pattern, it seems to be maybe much more diminished, maybe like 10 to 15% of the power uh, is in that high frequency. And, and sort of along the lines of, of understanding resting state, 
you know, what, what are your thoughts as to, well, one, uh, you know, what information do you think, it, what information is it like, you know, a combination of sort of cognitive, you know, sort of conscious thoughts, and then, you know, subconscious processes, or like you were saying, purely physiologic sort of oscillatory sort of neurons just need more oxygen or, uh, or is it, or is there other, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of, maybe I'm thinking of, of what the, the purpose or, and what information is there to, to tap into, to use from your resting state. So sort of thinking of, you know, what the, you know, there's been some papers by recent one, um, uh, by Maurizio Corvetta's group talking about sort of these unconscious sort of priming processes that resting state satisfies. Right. So if I understand uh, your question correctly, you're asking like what function does these uh, functional connectivities serve? And I would say that perhaps the fact that there are distinct uh, resting state network which have been associated with different function, perhaps that shows that, that these networks are indeed related to different cognition. And I think like Lucina and others using like the salience network and yep. others have shown how that can occur and how that can be uh, compromised, that could be compromised in clinical populations like schizophrenia. So yeah, I, I mean, I certainly I do think that, you know, the resting state uh, network does affect cognition and our cognitive processes. So, so you've been spending a lot of time on, I mean, not really a lot of time, but there's a lot of several papers that you have on, on ways of filtering, uh, of methods of cleaning up the signal. Is there a, a best, what's the best method right now? And then the other part of the question is, do you really, do you think that, I'm, I'm always hoping that this is the case, that, that we can fully uh, clean up the time series, you know, get rid of all the physiologic fluctuations that are not related to, you know, something meaningful about neuronal processes, like, you know, respiration, alias cardiac. Do you think that there's hope for just cleaning up the signal completely with the right choice of adaptive filtering, perhaps? Maybe we can hope, but it may not be that easy simply because how we sample the noise will determine what kind of noise and how noisy our signal will be, right? You know, the kind of uh, filtering I had used in, let's say in 1990s, I would not use those these days because there are, now we can collect so many data points. It's again, I should say, I would not use, I, I would say there can be improvement simply because at that time we could, maybe hope to collect 200. If we had 200 data points, that was very good. Now with the Human Connect Home project, we have 1200 data point, maybe more. And with again, with multiband or um, even the high, the newer method like MREEG that Jurgen Henning and others are developing, uh, you can collect 10 data points per second. So. For those kind of cases, um, one can use different filters. So uh, perhaps based on the data or based on the MR data that we collect, we could design 
what kind of filter we want. Also, as Andre would say, what is the signal we are interested, right? If we are interested in task data, then the filter would be somewhat different than if we are interested in the resting data. So I think based on that one point of design. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's something I'm always kind of pushing my own lab on, on trying to figure out ways of, of more cleanly separating the neuronal connectivity from just physiologic stuff going on, but, and it's a challenge. You're right. It depends on the acquisition. It depends on the TR. Uh, it depends on a, a lot of other factors that we still, and it also varies over the brain too. Um, right. So can I ask you a quick question? So sure. I should just say that, you know, in this podcast, uh, just to continue our conversation like we were having in grad school, uh, Pete, although Peter had suggested he would send me a question, I told him no, because it would have made me much more nervous. And so we can uh, just have a discussion. The question I had is, where do you see is going to be the limits of spatial and temporal resolution in fMRI? And how much data can be collected? Okay, you're asking me that. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you something like that. I mean, with, with the risk of sounding short-sighted. I, I actually think that, you know, at 7 Tesla, I've seen results now that show 0.4 millimeter uh, resolution. I think the limit uh, in, in resolution, obviously, is with time, but also in the phase instability uh, with multi-shot stuff. If you can, if we can figure out better ways of doing phase correction uh, to account for physiologic noise, uh, there, we can go down to lower than 0.4 millimeters uh, because we'll have time and we can fix that, uh, all the phase errors with multi-shot. So I think the images can go down to below 0.4 millimeters. And I do believe that, you know, the signal to noise obviously is almost zero. I mean, not zero, but it's like about 10 to one at 20 to one at the most at 0.4 millimeters, even at seven Tesla, we could filter things out, but we're already in the thermal noise regime. So it's, you know, there's, there's techniques such as Nordic that are coming out that might clean up some of the uh, thermal noise, but a little bit less than 0.4 millimeters. And then functional resolution, if we can be specific to capillaries, which I believe we can, uh, we'll be able to with the right sequence, it'll be about 0.4 millimeters, enough to resolve most of the layers in fMRI yeah. uh, and also whole brain. So that's my kind of long-winded thought, but. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Uh, but okay, so so I was going to ask you as well, not okay. really necessarily the, or did you want to ask me any more questions? I'm fine. <laughs> no, 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 that's it's fine. <laughs> yeah, um, but no, that's good. I'm, I'm ha- this is fun. This is fun to go back and forth. I was wondering though about networks and about, you know, you've also written papers on dynamic connectivity. You know, looking at changes in connectivity in states, and I always thought, I always thought that you know the the brain. How, how finely can you divide up states of the brain in time and how finely in space are things, are, are functional areas divided into networks? I mean, so we've, we have a paper with Renzo Huber where we go to, you know, super high resolution, we look at resting state and we can pull out digits uh, in resting state. seems like that's kind of a limit in some way, but maybe not. But also in time, as you were saying, this, you know, this power law relationship, things are potentially changing pretty rapidly, if, is the more finely you look, the more rapidly they change. So you have these states that are like 
five minutes or two minutes and then they go down. What are your thoughts on that, on, on temporal and spatial delineation of resting states? Uh, how far do you think it goes? How far do you think that we can look? <laughs> right, so again, Peter, you're asking me like really tough questions. So, uh, which, is, which is fine because I, I, you know, I don't know the answer but it makes me perhaps think a little bit. In, in terms of brain states, there is work by Elena Allen, where you know, she's taking series of images and then showing that there are like seven brain states. Even in, like in neuroimaging, brain state means different things to different people. To me, brain state is, or I should say state, is a very a state space is a, a term which is used in system identification. So if you have a dynamic system, you find the number of states it has, and they are useful because it will you can predict what will happen using a combination of these states. And the way Elena Allen has done that is using the same you know identification toolbox or same identification uh, methods, the way like Katie Chang and uh, colleagues they have done is looking at the dynamics and how it changes from time point to time point as to what is the optimal resolution is a very difficult question to answer because it is almost asking what is the optimal window length to be used in a filter. If you use a broad window length, then you lose the resolution. If you use too short a window length, then you will be increasing noise. I think, again, I have, you know, Vince Calhoun has written a few papers. Uh, well, of course, no one can really read all of Ben Calhoun's paper, but um, in, in terms of uh, window length, there's a couple of papers where I believe maybe 40 seconds, I, I could be wrong, was, was the amount he had mentioned. Yeah. So perhaps around that, but again, I, I would say based on the resolution because you know in neuroimage not too long ago i read this really nice review by from switzerland about micro state eeg yeah i'm, I'm forgetting uh, his name and i'm so sorry so yeah that's so, right that's right I uh, right so there they had used the eeg data to look at micro states and again in, in that they can show or they're showing that they can tell schizophrenia from healthy control based on this. So I, I think for answering this, the temporal resolution is critical to answer. Um, right. yeah. I hope I answered it. Yeah, no, no, that's a, I mean, I think that, sorry about the questions. I mean, it's sort of like purposely trying to find things that, you know, that we're all struggling with uh, as far as that's concerned. And I don't know that, I, you know, I don't know the answer uh, to that. It's funny when you were asking me questions, I thought you were gonna ask something embarrassing or something because <laughs> we have lots of stories as far as graduate school, but um, uh, which, which you're welcome to as well. Uh, Someday I'll write a tell-all book. <laughs> oh no, oh no. <laughs> Neither of us didn't have anything to hide anyway, so. Right, um, right. 
I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about clinical applications. I mean, you have you have a, some kind of nice review articles and other things sort of going over potential clinical applications people find, and along with your 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 groups, peer group and collaborators as well, have found differences in networks and resting state networks with you know ADHD, autism, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, uh, depression, OCD, substance abuse, Alzheimer's. And, and this is sort of the thing I'm confronted with more and more is that people find these differences in these groups. And, and then usually, you know, the general public asks me about this and say, well, why, why is this used clinically then to help diagnose and understand? I'm like, well, because, you know, when you put a person in the scanner, it's just one person and, and it's hard to make, you know, it's hard to find a robust biomarker that has a large enough effect size for an individual. And, and resting state is great because you don't have to have the subject do anything. You know, maybe looking at movies might be better a little bit. Um, you have a paper sort of on that, which I tend to agree with uh, as well, but um, there might be just different though. So what are your thoughts on the ultimate, if can there be a day-to-day -day clinical application of resting state, either we're doing nothing or looking at movies or, or something like that? What's, what are your thoughts on that? and what we'd have to overcome. For clinical application, uh, there's a lot of work which is going on, but, but as you said, can we do single subject determination and using a single subject, can we say whether this is Alzheimer's or this is schizophrenia? I feel that um, slowly we are coming to that point in a sense that once we describe that, okay, if all in Alzheimer's or in aging, these are the networks which are going to be different. Then you can use, uh, and you had a large data set of subjects, then one could use like a machine learning algorithm to find the difference. You could also use partial least square like uh, methods that uh, Randy McIntosh and others have developed where if you know what the group level uh, changes are, then you can look at individual and see how much they deviate and then perhaps make a prediction. Yeah. Um, but for those, I feel you need like not 100, but maybe data sets in like 1,000 or so. Um, and then again, age and other factors come into play. But, but I think it should be possible. But, but having said that, you know, clinical diseases are so heterogeneous. They are always typically uh, more heterogeneous than healthy control. Just like two days ago or so, Tom Insel had written this editorial in uh, New York Times expressing maybe some of his frustration and like hope what can happen in psychiatric uh, disorder. So uh, to me, you know, if psychiatrists are struggling themselves to classify the different types or subtypes of, uh, let's say, schizophrenia, then the resting state, perhaps, it, I mean, I would be obviously very happy, but perhaps just resting state may not be that useful, one should use resting state in conjunction with clinical measure um, yeah. to, to come with a solution. Yeah, no, you brought up a really good point uh, that 
the idea of the, you know, and it's sort of similar in cognitive science too, the ontologies of, or how we divide up clinical disorders. And, it, and it's sort of, you know, agreed upon, but it, the brain may not uh, manifest in the same way as the disorders as the behavior is, is looked at. And so, you know, you might have an ontology of different disorders, but then the brain might have its own pattern of, of how it is disordered that might not, you know, be in line with those. So yeah, that's a struggle. That's a struggle. I was actually just listening to Russ Poldrick talking about uh, in the 1800s, you know, we talked about things like, you know, suavity or things like that, which um, doesn't really have a, a neural component. Uh, and maybe, our, maybe even these disorders may not have, uh, they might not be as cleanly defined uh, as manifestations in the brain, but that's tricky. But yeah, there's only there's only always hope, and I, I I'm glad you brought up the partially squares with Randy McIntosh. That I think that there's hope in in doing that type of approach, um, if we can right. effect size. Yeah, I think there is also like some work where they have like uh, some other group have done PCA to also do. So I think like one can go along that route also. So just to you know move towards uh, looks like we're 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 starting to get towards the end, but I mean, this is great. I could I could talk for hours. This is, we'll have to have you back. Or maybe we could just have a podcast devoted to our, our stories from graduate school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the most exciting things you're working on now? And what do you see as the as the ultimate future of, of resting state fMRI? I mean, these are sort of open-ended questions, but uh, you know, what what excites you most about resting state right now that that you're working on, and and what are your prospects for the future? I think I mentioned a um, little bit about what I'm doing, like white matter, yeah. also PPI analysis, looking at the interaction between different networks predicting the future is very difficult so who knows right um, how things will pan out uh, with resting state i would if i was to guess i would say that you know like machine learning is becoming very popular there's so many very nice studies coming up um, where they are showing how machine learning is useful to find subtypes or characterize resting state. Um, the other area that I'm really or have been uh, trying to follow is trying to look um, at like the neurovascular coupling and how it may uh, modulate resting state. So during grad school, I had done work with Tony Huritz um, on, on these uh, work. And now uh, I think, you know, Elizabeth Hillman, uh, she, like her work is really good. Uh, even Arvind just recently had a paper in Nature Methods, again, which uh, provides unprecedented spatial and temporal resolution using multimodal information to, again, to better understand these neurovascular mechanism or origin, if you will, of these fluctuations. Um, also, it's like, can we look at different parameters within resting state? For example, ALFF seems to correlate with uh, glucose consumption. Uh, Reho correlates with local connectivity. So if we use many... 
if I just, so just to clarify, ALFF is uh, the measure of total power of bold signal in the, in the low frequency range and, and Reho is- The regional air... homogeneity. Yes. So, so ALFF, uh, thank you, I, I should have, uh, yeah. yeah. So ALFF right. is, um, it basically tells us how much relative power is in the low frequency band while uh, regional homogeneity tells us how each voxel correlates with its neighbor. So again, using a number of different yep. measures of uh, resting state, could we gather more information than simply doing, let's say, ICA or seed-based analysis? So- Yeah, and actually you bring up a really good point. I mean, there's you know, so many people are, you know, I mean, I think, the tendency is to think of just the certain ways. Oh, you do ICA, you split it up, and or or you can do you know PCA or 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 other sort of time frequency. But but there are other measures like you mentioned it, ALFF and and Reho, that that really pull out aspects of resting state that could be more informative uh, about it, disease. Yeah, right. And I, I think as I um, you know I have told um, uh, we had a few papers in which we had shown how. You know, if you cannot do breath holding, you know, which you had first done, um, hypercapnic stimulus, then you can substitute the resting state. Uh, it's not the same, but it gives you, at least in healthy subject, a measure which correlates. So, um, you know, I always say, even if you don't believe in resting state, you should collect the resting data because if nothing else, you can use it to calibrate your task activation data, and yeah. maybe you know share it with others who are interested in resting state. That's good advice as far as that's concerned. Any advice you you'd want to give, or is there anything else you want to say about resting state or about what you're doing? And then lastly, what would what would be any advice you give? Would you like to give to like you know young scientists, maybe the next person that will discover the next big thing? Um, with uh, young scientists, I, I would um, I would say that the field is uh, so much more open now. You know, anyone, you know, with a good, uh, com decent computer and modem can do fMRI for, you know. And for young students, anyone who is interested uh, in fMRI, first they should buy a famous book by Peter Bandettini, right? <laughs> read it in the first few days. And then, you know, there are many like 26 controversies that they can think uh, carefully. There is 10 questions about resting state. <laughs> they can, you know, <laughs> ask those questions. And, you know, if uh, they need to, you know, I hope they would want to learn more. There is another graduate student fellow graduate student, Alan Song. He has also written another book uh, with Scott Hutel. You know, it may take them a little more than reading your book, Peter, so. Uh, Mine was light. Mine was <laughs> yes, but it, it gets them started, right? Um, yeah. and, and so again, I'm, again, I'm not joking. I'm like serious because like one can really get started. And, and I think, Initially, you know, people may find it hard to believe when like some journals 
published like uh, MRM or neuroimage when the first the issues came out, I would open and look at the color pictures, how, how nice they looked, right? But now it's hard to imagine pictures which are not in color. And even so, again, so many, there are so many more resources. One could just use YouTube and find good lectures and so on. So I feel there's a lot of problem that still is um, open for people to solve. And I think also, again, I, I think it doesn't apply to you, Peter, but perhaps more to me where, you know, like now the new student there, like language skills, and other things are so much better than when I was at their age. So it's a really exciting time for students. Yeah, and I just have to maybe reemphasize for everyone it's, as well, is that there's a lot of, I think that there's a lot of serendipity involved. I mean, for instance, you were looking, when you made your first discovery though, you were, you were kind of looking for something else in some sense. You're just trying to understand the noise characteristics. You're doing that. But then you saw something unique and you noted that it was unique. Um, I think that a lot of things uh, are potentially interesting that are right in front of us. And it's just a matter of, you know, doing what you did is sort of like stepping back and saying, hey, wait a second, this is, this is interesting. So I think that in itself, I think, could be something to learn from you as far as that's concerned. Thank you, Peter. So can I ask one more question? Sure. <laughs> Uh-oh, so, I'm always nervous. No. When you say you're going to ask questions, I get nervous. No. <laughs> yeah. That's not true. But um, so what do you think is the role of multimodal imaging? Where do you see it can help? Either task or rest. The, the first answer could be, uh, you know, simultaneous multimodal imaging, you know, can capture a temporal domain or, or a spatial domain that's different. Than, than whatever mod modality you have. Like, you know, fMRI and EEG is the first thing that comes to mind. You know, EEG can capture more of the temporal domain. And there's some evidence potentially that, you know, uh, feed forward versus feedback signals are different frequencies in EEG. And so that might help constrain uh, or, or enhance the interpretation of fMRI in that regard. And ultimately, you know, what we really want to do is not just descriptive, you know, we want to build models. And to build these models, we have to actually have as much detailed, fine-grained information to feed into it as possible, along with whole brain information. So the, you know, fMRI gets great whole brain information. All these modalities might add their components, either in the temporal domain or in the, you know, whether it looks more directly at neural activity or not. Uh, that might complement. So it's sort of a synergistic sort of combination of like, you know, you can you can more deeply interpret fMRI if you have some other technique in, uh, sort of supporting it. But also I think that uh, the information you get uh, can be uh, a little bit more than each technique in itself. Uh, there's a big role for uh, not only like EEG and fMRI, but even not simultaneous like, F, like MEG and fMRI or even, or even optical imaging, you know, to answer some of these questions about, I mean, calcium imaging, like with Elizabeth Hillman, there's some really in, good insights uh, from that, that, you know, the idea that it's more excitatory related than inhibitory, uh, potentially, 
Um, so things like that, I think are, and also of course, optogenetics, right, right. a huge amount of control. So, right. so there's things like that. You can manipulate the experiment or, uh, or with TMS, you can, you can modulate nodes and look at how it changes resting state. So there's, there's an added dimension of what you can do and how deeply you can interpret things with, with multimodal. But yeah, that's at least my off top of the head uh, description of what, what we can gain from multimodal. <laughs> but anyway, is there anything else that, uh, that you wanted to talk about? Anything else that um, comes to mind? If I can just ask one more thing then. So what do you, so do you think when like it's something about movie watching we are like again uh, we are very interested but i always have the question that is movie watching the same as resting state let's say two people watch the same movie at the same time will their experience be the same and if not then is it the intrinsic network, which is creating the difference, or is it something else? What is your opinion about like movie watching in general? Yeah, um, I, I look at like movie watching as equivalent to like in cardiac, you know, doing cardiac studies where you get a stress test. Um, you know, you sort of have to, to see differences. You kind of have to push the system a little bit. And, and so, so I look at, certainly you can see differences with resting state. Movie watching, but movie watching is tricky because if you, if it's, if it's too, if it drives the system like too much, then people will be like in lockstep and they'll all be similar potentially. But there is a chance that you could drive differences. Like, you know, with Emily Finn, when she was, when she was here, she did, and even before she came, she did like a, you know, listening to a story, and some people who were slightly paranoid interpreted the story differently. And then that was drawn out where it may not be drawn out intrinsically with resting state. So that's the hope to, to build these movies like their uh, litmus tests or uh, stress tests to, to pull out these differences uh, that may not show up, but it's not perfect. It, it, and I do think that what you look at what you experience consciously is related to the movie watching, but there might be real information in the resting state that's not time-locked with the movie. That's also a biomarker. That's right. also potentially interesting. So that's part you're still missing. So yeah, I think it helps. I don't think it's like clearly better or clearly worse. It's just sort of, it, it helps. It's complimentary. I would always recommend you're sort of doing a task though, uh, potentially along with doing the resting state. I guess that's my best explanation of, um, it's like a stress test, it'll pull things out, but it won't pull out everything. So. Yeah, there, I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, interest now in movie watching, so, and we have also doing some work, but I want, since you have published a few papers recently, I wanted to get your opinion. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful. And I think that, you know, Emily is just cranking as far as that's concerned. She's really developing this whole science of what is the best stimulus that pulls people apart, that pulls different, that, that maximizes this effect size of differences between individuals. 
And there's, you know, there's, if you really get into it, there's a whole science to what you can do to someone to make them appear different than others or to be, you know, to pull out the differences. Um, so, which is a really cool thing that, that she's doing as far as that's concerned. So, and I, and we're certainly working on it uh, as well, but um, uh, uh, in our group still, it'd be fun to combine like, and movie watching, oh, I forgot to mention, this is probably one of the most important things is that you can, it opens up the type of analysis you can do. You can do sort of cross subject correlations that uh, you know, help pull out these, these networks that may not uh, have a perfect hemodynamic response or might have you know, perfect uh, show up. They show up you know, as cross subject correlations that may be correlated or not, depending on whether the subject's similar or not. So, and I'd love to apply that to like layer resolution as well. Uh, that is uh, exciting area. I wish I could get some data on layer of the model. Well, uh, you know, all of the data that we collect, we try to make publicly available. And Renzo Huber has a whole data set on resting state, or actually watching the Connecto movie with the same time locking. Uh, he has like 25 data sets uh, already uh, on Open Neuro. Um, okay, I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah. I thought right. I, I, had, I had seen there were only two, but I haven't checked through. Yeah, I think there's more. I think he had to redo some of them because there was an artifact and some data sets and okay. he had to redo it, but it's there. He's, he's working on it. But, uh, but anyway, so thank you again, Bharat, okay. for, okay. for coming on and having, this has been a great conversation. It's always really fun, uh, not only to, it just reminds me of old times and catching up, uh, but I always like to, you know, I think your thought process is creative and unique. And, and, and I think that's, uh, it's always fun to hear what your perspective is on these things. So, so thanks again. Thank you, Peter. Um, you know, it's a real pleasure for inviting. Most of the discussion I used to have with Peter was typically after midnight, <laughs> after, you know, either of us had finished scanning and then we would uh, chat. Um, um, so, also, I would like to, you know, if it's possible, take this opportunity to, you know, thank my, I mean, one doesn't get much opportunity in public to thank, uh, you know, your mentors like Dr. Jim and Karen Hyde, Ted Dio, Tony Huditz, Zaren Atkin, Bob Cox. I'm sure I'm forgetting some name. C. Jang Lee. Also, I, I would say I was um, like in, in Wisconsin, I was even fortunate to have, you know, many illustrious alumni like Peter Banatini, Alan Song, Eric Wong, Beth, Jack, um, and, and many others, which I, I learned as much. So uh, Peter, thank you again for inviting. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode was produced by Ekaterina Dobrikova and Alfie Wine.